Welcome to Peterson's Bowhunting Radio, presented by Easton's hard-hitting Axis Arrows. Learn more about Easton's cutting-edge and fuse carbon arrow technology today at www.eastonarchery.com. Now here's your host of Peterson's Bowhunting Radio, editor Christian Burr. All right, welcome back to Peterson's Bowhunting Radio. I'm editor Christian Berg, and as always, we're glad that you've taken some of your time to be with us today. We are going to spend a little bit of time discussing one of the most elemental parts of hunting today, which is after you've made that good shot and you've walked up to your carcass and you look there on the ground, what you have lying there is, I guess at its most basic, is meat, tasty organic, nutritious meat. And the guest that we have today is uh, a lover of uh, all things meat-oriented. That's none other than Mr. Stephen Ranella. Uh, Steve, great to have you with us today, and congratulations on your brand new show, Meat Eater, which is debuting January 1 on the Sportsman Channel. Yeah, so uh, when you wake up all hungover that day, you'll have to perk up and clear up drink some Gatorade and get ready for a good program. Hey, that's awesome, man. Uh, real quick, I mean, let's just dive right into it. Meat Eater. Uh, uh, pretty straightforward name. Uh, I assume this is a hunting show that's going to be focused on killing stuff and eating it. Yeah, our tagline for the show, like when we conceptualize it, has been killer hunts, killer food. And um, I grew up, you know, hunting with like kind of like the meat being almost secondary. You know what I mean? Like we hunted for family reasons. We hunted for adventure. Um, we hunted just to be out in the wilds. But at the same time, when we get home, you know, a lot of times that game meat would wind up in the freezer for a while and it might get a little bit forgotten about. And I started, when I finally moved away from home and had to fend for myself, I realized at that point what hunting was really about because. I didn't have any money, barely. I was in college, and we hunted for food to the point where we would kill a deer. We'd go out like October 1, be the archery opener. We'd kill a deer, and we'd eat that thing so fast that we would just sometimes hang it, and we wouldn't even need to freeze it. Me and my roommates would pour through that deer so quick. Mm -hmm. At that point, I became, at that point in my life, like hunting and eating became inseparable. It was like a means to an end. And as far as the name meat eater, I've always just liked it, man. When people are talking about lions or whatever, people are like, yeah, it's a meat eater, you know? And it's like, I'm a meat eater. So I just wanted to call the show that because I wanted to draw in and just almost point out the obvious. And the obvious to me is that in an ancestral sense and in a historical sense, hunting is about eating. Also, we're in a never-ending debate in this country, you know, about the moral validity of hunting. Like, should people be allowed to hunt or not? And in some ways, we're at the mercy of public perception. Mm-hmm. Because we live in a democracy, and you can, you know, put up referendums that restrict hunting rights, and they can get passed. And I think that we're we're morons if we don't pay attention to that, and in some ways try to win the mental battle and to win the hearts of non-hunters. And I think by drawing that parallel to food, it resonates with people. And so, for all these reasons, you know, I wanted to continue to do books and articles and TV that really point out that, uh, hey, you know, the American hunter is a guy out securing his own grub. Mm-hmm. 
Absolutely. So, so when when we watch Meat Eater, uh, we're gonna see you uh, downplaying the trophy side of things. Are you looking for you know big animals to eat, or are you just looking for any animal that you can feed your face with? You know, it's kind of a little bit complicated because I have you know I can't sit here and tell you. That, that I that I don't have admiration for big huge buck racks. I mean, when I step into the woods, man, I'm always hoping. You know, I'm always hoping that I'm gonna get a big smoker. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter what it is. When, you know, when I go out to, to you know during the rut to hunt elk, would would I like to kill a huge elk? Of course, man. And and it depends. Like at some point though, in every hunt I go on, I'm always weighing um, what I'm really after. Which is I'm really after like meat, feed my family, feed my friends, feed myself. On top of that, if I can have the luxury of of, of scoring like a big buck that I want to hang on my wall or put on my bookshelf, that's great too. But I don't let those desires get in the way of, of me harvesting game meat. For instance, first episode we did, first episode we filmed this fall, meat eater was uh, Southeast Alaska. Flew in the National Forest land, Tongass National Forest, hunting blacktail deer. First day, like, boom, you know, we're on top of a forky. I didn't even think about shooting that forky. Because I'm like, you know, this guy has first day I saw. We saw two bucks coming in on the plane to land here. There's no way I'm going to shoot that. Then we got hit by bad weather, 70-mile-an-hour winds. I'm not kidding you. Like, made the front page of the Ketchikan newspaper how high the wind was. Got onto a big, huge buck. Blew my chance on the big buck. More bad weather, rain, wind. Eventually, here's an identical forky to that one I passed up in the first place, and I was damn glad to shoot that deer. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Because meat means a lot to me, you know? So it just, it, it always depends. Some things you go on a hunt, like anyone who's hunted, like for instance, anyone who's hunted doll sheep would know. If you've done a do-it-yourself doll sheep hunt, you know that a legal ram is a trophy ram. I mean, it's a challenge to, on your own, go and find you know, full curl ramp. And you get that chance. You're like, that one's legal. That one's for me. And that's just kind of a feeling I'm familiar with, you know? So I like racks. My house is decorated with skulls and, and European mounts, but I like meat more. So I don't, I'm not acting like I'm out, you know, dissing on trophy hunting because I'm definitely not, man. I mean, I, one of my life goals is, you know, like a 30 inch mule beer. I'd love to get a 30 inch mule beer, but when I do, you can bet I'm going to be eating them too. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and, and this is a concept that, that I've been thinking about uh, just recently, kind of as, as you say, it, it's, a, it's a paradox between, uh, you use the word luxury, okay, as modern, uh, you know, quote unquote, sport hunters, we have the luxury of being trophy hunters if we choose to do that, because, you know, we don't have to rely on the success or failure of our outings in the field to sustain our bodies because we can go to the supermarket if we're unsuccessful. Oh yeah, we're gonna we're gonna eat no matter what, man. <laughs> so so you know, again, we have that luxury. But if you think about you know the the prehistoric man, you know who first you know bent a stick to create a bow and put some flint-tipped arrows together, you know, there was no consideration about, you know, things like 
ethical shots. I mean, I would imagine if you were worried about having anything to eat that day, any shot that you could get into an animal just to slow it down was going to be an ethical shot because, heck, you could chase that thing as as long as you had to until you could kill it, you know. Uh, it was just the way. So there's a lot of things that have changed, but the essence of putting food on the table is one thing that has never changed and never will change as long as we we are, you know, hunters and predators out there in the field. I agree. Some of the things we're doing as modern sportsmen or modern hunters, some of the things we're doing are, are, are so elemental and, and like haven't changed over tens of thousands of years. But we do, we live in, in, in a fairly complicated world now, and we have a very sophisticated notion of conservation now. So, we can't act like that we're ancestral hunters anymore. I mean, if you look at the archaeological record, you'll see that people would run, you know, 300 buffalo or bison off the edge of a cliff, and then when they when they excavate that site, they realize that only maybe 13 or 14 of them were ever cut up. You know, they took as many as they needed, but there was no sense of um, there was no sense of it being finite. You know, you didn't, you probably didn't have a sense that you'd ever run out of these things. It was a foreign concept. So I think that now, you know, we're so much more aware of, of our obligations to the outdoors and, and aware of things. And I don't like to act. I mean, I can't even, I don't like to insinuate in any way or act in any way. Like I rely on game meat to eat. I mean, obviously I don't. You know what I mean? I'm like a very middle-class American. I have access to everything I need. I, I don't want to sit here and tell you that I don't have a cash income. Right. But it's a moral choice I've made to hunt for my food. It's a moral choice and also like an ethical choice and it's a lifestyle choice. The same way people have done other things. Like, you know, we have people that, that, that have committed themselves to living on a family farm. You know, no one's putting the gun to their head but it's something they choose to do. And so hunting for food is something I've chosen to do. I don't like to present it like I'm stuck between a rock and a hard place. It's, it, it's a lifestyle that in some ways is inconvenient, um, but in most ways, it's just an exhilarating, very deliberate way to live. Oh, absolutely. And and not only, like you, you talked about that, you know, not only that, but one thing that I like to say, Stephen, is that, is that hunting, you know, in today's world and in, in, in modern American society where everything is so plugged into technology and, you know, so much of what we do, you know, is on cell phones and computers and television. Uh, hunting is one of the most real things that you're still allowed to do in this world, you know, to actually go out and participate in that life and death struggle that has been in existence, you know, since the planet has been spinning. And we just wrapped up our 2012 new gear guide. And of course, you know how high tech, you know, every part of hunting has gotten and bow hunting is certainly no exception. And when you look at, you know, all the new cam designs and the laser range finders and the, you know, the, the, the crazy broadhead uh, designs that come out every year, I mean, it's, it's mind boggling. But one of the things that I wrote about in my editor's column for that issue is that, you know, to me, one of the beauties of of hunting in general, bow hunting specifically, as I was writing about it, is that all of these modern technologies, all of this modern equipment at our disposal has not been able 
to destroy the essence of what hunting is all about. And when we pick up our bow or our rifle and we go out into the field, yeah, we might be wearing, you know, the newest camo pattern from Mossy Oak, or we might have, you know, some really fancy new scope on top of our rifle. But at the end of the day, the game really hasn't changed one bit from exactly what it was when those cavemen went out there with their spears and put food over the fire. Well, you know, what you're saying is something I think about all the time. Because, you know, that I'm saying, like, the only uh, change is the only thing that's certain. Or, you know, I'm screwing up the saying, but the sentiment is that everything always changes and it always has. The fact that we're having, really, like, the technology we have in hunting now, it's, just, it's a continuum that's always gone on. If you look at when people first arrived, in the new world, maybe 13, 14, 15,000 years ago. They came here before the invention of the bow and arrow. They used this, probably used a spear-throwing device you know, called an atlatl. Four or 5,000 years ago, you see that the, the bow emerges on the scene. Now, do you think back then, atlatl users would have been like, you know what, I'm not into this new technology thing. I'm not going to pick up the bow and arrow. There's no way. That was a greater leap to jump from the spear-throwing board to a bow and arrow was a greater leap than going from not having a rangefinder to having a rangefinder. Then you look down the line. When, when, we, when, when Europeans began introducing firearms to Native Americans, they jumped at it. It was the most exciting thing to them. And imagine the technological leap of going from a bow to a rifle. And then you look at the technological leap of going from a musket, a non-rifle barrel, to a rifle barrel, and then going from a paper cartridge to a brass-cased cartridge. Hunters have always jumped on technological innovation. I don't think there's any reason now that we're supposed to say, like, oh, now we're bound by tradition, when, when thousands of years ago people certainly weren't. They, they left that changes, you know? And I think that that's one of the great things about American conservation and stuff is that we've kept abreast of these changes and have adjusted some laws accordingly, you know, and I still think that the essence of the hunt, the, the challenge of the hunt still exists. It might be more challenging now, even with all with what we have. It might be more challenging now to kill a bull elk than it's ever done because animals get smart. Animals keep up to speed on what's going on. You look at, like, people have been hunting in Yellowstone National Park for 9,000 years or so, the last 100 years notwithstanding. You go to Yellowstone National Park, those elk know you're not going to get them. Mm-hmm. They'll stay in 10 feet away. When they, when they migrate out of there in the winter, they switch back into hunting mode, and they oh you see a person, you don't want to be within three 400 yards of that guy. Right. It's right. just, you know, I mean, it, it keeps speed, you know. So I'm never that apologetic about when, when people, non-hunters or anti-hunters, say, oh, yeah, but now, you know, it's so easy because you have this and that. And I'm like, you know what? Go oh, on the no, mountain. Steve, actually, I, got, I, got, I actually have a – here's another show idea for you, okay, after you win your – your Oscar or whatever for meat eater. Uh, <laughs> I actually think that exact thing, you know, people who, you know, who object to, to hunting or, or think that it's so easy, you know, I used to be a, uh, an outdoor writer at, at, for newspapers before I came into the magazine world. And at newspapers, you deal with society, I'm going to say mainstream society, if you will, much more so than I do here at Peterson's Bowhunting, where my audience is really, 
you know, a, a core group of, of enthusiastic bow hunters. And when you write for newspapers, uh, and I know you've done a lot of writing for general interest magazines, okay, you're dealing with the world at large. So you've got your hunters, your non-hunters, and your anti-hunters, and your audience is broad. And so you deal with these people who, who have objections and want to have debates about things, which is fine. Uh, it's great. But uh, it would be really cool to take somebody who is adamantly against hunting and say, you know what you're going to do? You're going to go through an entire archery season with me. You're going to be my shadow. So when I say tomorrow morning you're getting up at 4 o'clock and you're going to meet me here at 4.20 and we're going to be in the stand at 5, you're going to be right next to me. And you're going to sit there in the cold next to me for four hours while we don't see any game. And then when we climb down, I'm going to tell you to be back tomorrow at 4.20 and we're going to do it again. And you're going to spend however many hundreds of hours it takes up there with me in the woods and out of the woods, up the mountain and down the mountain. When we finally kill that animal, you're going to see the work that's involved in getting the animal out of the woods. You're going to see the meals that we create with this animal. You're going to see my family interact with me as I deal with, you know, the frustrations of the hunt or just being overtired or having to take care of things at work, at school, with my kids, with my wife, as all this is going on. You're going to see, you know, the different things that are happening in the habitat, the threats that are there, the things that are really impacting the animals. You're going to see some of the things that the animals do to themselves. If you think it's brutal to, you know, go out there and kill an animal, you ever see, you know, what a pack of coyotes will do to a sick deer or even just a mature white-tailed buck who's all rutted up and wants to breed and will run a doe mercilessly until she's exhausted and relents. I mean, there's things that are happening out there that these people just don't even know about. Live my life. Walk in my shoes for three months and then tell me what you think. You still may not be a hunter. You may not become hunting's greatest proponent, but you will have a much deeper appreciation for the process. And I'd be very surprised if that person's perspective was not dramatically altered by an up-close, first-person look at what it's all about. I, I can tell you, I mean, I know for certainty that you're right because I have had... You know, because I walk a line between like you know hunting culture and also some, like a lot of non-hunting people, I've had the opportunity and the privilege to many, many times. You know, I've taken about a dozen people on their first ever hunt. Many people grew up with no even interest in hunting. I've never taken someone on a hunt and had them come away with a negative impression of hunting ever, ever. You go out and see what like a dedicated hunter's relationship is with the natural world, what his relationship is with the animals and the way he loves the animals. And it, that seems like, that, I know that always sounds paradoxical to non-hunters, but it's like something I don't even need to explain anymore. The way a hunter like loves being around animals, loves the general well-being of the population. Mm-hmm. People always walk away with a feeling like, oh, I get it now. I see what you're saying now. Mm-hmm. And the greatest, you know, it's like, you look at the, cultures in the past that worshiped animals. Cultures in the past that worshiped animals were hunting cultures. It's like, if you hunt, you're going to come away with it, loving animals. I mean, you, you just can't not do it. You know, you, you love the environment, man. And um, that's like something that I don't try to harp on it. You know what I mean? In myself, like I, I try to, like I think of myself as like largely like an entertainer. You know, I want people to watch the show, meat eater. I want to be entertained. I want that, I want that 30 minutes to fly by. I want people to read my stuff. I want them to be entertained. I want them to laugh. You know, I want them to, to just to think that it was a, a great story. But I try to infuse in that all the time in a subtle way that doesn't like bang people over the head with it. I try to infuse it all the time. Some of the things we're talking about of, you know, 
the, the, the role a hunter plays in the world and the way that the natural world impacts a hunter. You know, on like an emotional, even a spiritual sense. It's always on my mind. But I don't like to, to, to bang people over the head with it, you know. So I, I try to like slip it in there between the cracks, you know. So you're like a subtle ambassador for the sportsman. I try to be. If that, you know what, if, if that wound up being what someone chiseled into the into the headstone in the graveyard, I'd be pretty happy with that. A subtle ambassador. <laughs> let's Let's... Uh, you know, I'm I'm looking at the lineup for your show, and and like, you know, you talk about meat eater, okay? Like, I'm thinking, all right, if push came to shove, you know, society collapsed, and I'm trapped on the mountain, and I've got to feed myself every day. I'm thinking I'm eating a lot of squirrels and groundhogs, and you know, maybe a couple grouse. I'm looking at the lineup. I mean. You're meat eating on some pretty incredible hunts here. Like you said, your first episode is black-tailed deer in in Alaska. Then you've got Alaskan black bear. You've got coos deer in Arizona. Uh, uh, you've got owl dad sheep in Texas. Mountain goats in Alaska. I mean, you're getting into some exotic stuff here. Uh, is all this stuff? Tell me a little bit about the the cooking that you're doing with this, because I think you're also doing a little bit of I mean, it's kind of rustic because it's in the field, but it's kind of gourmet too. And is all this stuff really tasty, or is some of it uh, a lot tastier than others? I would say that some's tastier than others, but it's all super. It's all servable. It's all great. But I say this on the show a number of times. I don't know that. that I don't think that the primary purpose of food is to always taste good. You know, we're, like, focused on, like, taste and whether it was good or not. But I think that sometimes food can just have different sets of responsibilities. Like, it can teach us lessons. It can show us things about survival. It can show us things about history. So when I'm cooking something, the point isn't always for me to make it, like, as good as possible. The type of cooking we do on Meat Eater, we do a lot of stuff all in the backcountry. But a lot of stuff kind of walks this line between like rustic survival food and gourmet. And I'll, and I'll give you, for instance, hunting coos deer in Arizona. I wanted to cook part of that deer um, using no, like no man-made products whatsoever. Like let's just say you were plopped down in the woods with a dead deer laying there. So what I did was I took the heart from the deer. And I like to eat the, the organs first because, you know, organs don't keep well. Like, you know, liver doesn't freeze that well. Um, they tend to go bad faster. Also, if you look historically, people who've lived on a wild game diet eat a lot of organ meat because you can get starved for nutrients just eating nothing but lean red meat. You can get starved for fat eating nothing but lean red venison or, or rabbit or what have you. So it's important to me to eat organ meat right off the bat. So you like to pull those livers right out of the carcasses and just start chomping in, huh? No, no, I don't do raw. I eat a little bit of raw, but I do a lot of cook. So with this heart, there's a thing that, that, that I've read about in like old French cookbooks, like old cuisine cookbooks, where they would use call fat from beef. And like all the abdominal lining has this membrane around that just gets full of fat and looks almost like lace. But the white parts of the lace are these strands of fat. And they used to sell this stuff, call fat, because back then they didn't have like turkey bags and things. So if you wanted to keep a roast moist when you're cooking it, you would wrap it in this call fat membrane. When I started gutting out this 
Tuesday at Buck, I realized that he he's a real fatty animal, pre-rut. And he had this just great layer of call fat in him. So I took that heart and wrapped it in maybe six, seven layers of call fat. Put that thing on a rack over a fire, over some mesquite wood inside of cooking it. And people talk about fat dripping off something. Fat ran off this thing like you turned on a faucet of fat, you know? And I was able to cook that over the fire with that fat casing, almost like a cocoon around that heart. And it got hard after a while, and eventually got kind of charred and black because you're cooking over a fire. But I was able to roast that heart all the way through. And when you peel the call fat away, which absorbed all that most intense heat, you had a perfectly roasted, fat-based deer heart with not a trace of char on it, just a gorgeous deer heart. Hunting black bears is a big, fat black bear. So I took that fat, cubed it up, and rendered it into oil. And I rented a couple quarts of oil off a few handfuls of bear fat and then was able to deep fry my own bear meat in my own homemade oil over a fire. How was that? This stuff's so good. You'd be able to, you'd be able to serve this stuff in a restaurant. But yeah. it's also just like raw, gritty stuff, and it's like good tricks to know, man, that you can like make your own oil off a of bear. That stuff sells online for 70 bucks an ounce. Bear oil? You know? Yeah. I got two gallons off one bear to fall. Okay. <laughs> that's, that's something. But they don't sell it for food purposes. People use it for, like, weird stuff, like hairdressing and stuff. Just like, but, yeah, 70 bucks an ounce, man. I have two gallons right now. I've been giving out, I've been giving out quart-sized jars of rendered bear oil that we use, like, lard to bake pie crust to fry stuff in. You do, like, refried beans and bear oil. It's amazing. Mm. I use bear oil instead of vegetable oil. Let me ask you this. You know? Did you Have you had any kind of, like, disasters out there where... You know, you, you killed something and you, you cooked something up and you were thinking it was going to be really good and it was just kind of like, ah, that didn't really work. Yeah, a little bit. Um, that just happened where you people used to, like people who didn't have access to pots, like steel pots, you know, or, or ceramics, people used to use the stomach or the hide of an animal and line a hole. Mm-hmm. in the ground to make a pot with it. But the thing is, obviously, you can't take an animal's stomach and put it over a fire to so burn right through it. So the way you boil that then is you start a fire and you put rocks in the fire. You get the rocks super hot and then drop them into that stomach full of water and it brings the water to a boil. So we were just out in Texas and we had a bunch of javelina meat and we took the javelina stomach and got it stretched out good and lined a hole with that stomach and filled it full of creek water started dropping hot rocks in there and bring it to a boil and started simmering javelina meat in there. But I didn't clean the rocks well with all the ash. So now I realize that I've seen people cook like with hot rocks before and they always make a point to take the rock out of the fire, dip it into one bucket of water to clean it and then drop it in to cook with. Mm. But I was just throwing those gritty city rocks right in that stomach and every bite of that javelina meat sounded like you were chewing gravel. Mm. I mean, that thing is coated in soot and gravel and whatnot. But the thing is, man, I don't want to throw it out. So we just toughed it out. Another disaster I had, killed a wild boar in California, and they like to roll in poison oak. And I've gotten poison oak out in this area hunting before, and so I steered clear the whole time of any poison oak. Had no idea that boar was coated in the oil, in the resin. When I got done a couple days later, it looked like I had sleeves made out of poison oak. Then... One of the guys on the crew got into it. Two weeks later, I lent my backpack that I was wearing that day to my brother 
hunting mule deer in Montana. He calls me up a few days later. He's coated in poison oak from using my backpack. Oh, yeah, that is. <laughs> so, that is. That, that little, you know, I'll tell you something about that whole thing too. Just an added thing about it. I got. I had the pre, the, the poison oak so bad. I, I got. They put me on prednisone, a prescription for prednisone. Yeah, sure. Which is a real powerful steroid. Yeah. And that can compromise your immune system. So when I got back from that, we filmed three episodes: uh, Arizona, Montana, California. I got back from that trip. And I must have got into some bad drinking water or something because I had Giardia so bad that I wound up uh, with a colon infection and spent four days in the hospital. Well, it's all. I link all that. I link all that to that pig. All because <laughs> of that one pig, man. I'm telling you what, now when I watch that footage, I look at that pig. At the time, I had no idea, and I just can't believe it. I'm basically like rolling on that pig. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's uh, it's a occupational hazard, I guess they call that. For sure, man. For sure. Well, let's talk a little bit about bow hunting. I know that uh, you've got a couple bow hunting episodes here coming up on Meat Eater, like uh, that Havelina uh, hunt that you just mentioned. I think you carry the bow on that one, and you've got a. I guess you've got another hunt coming up real soon. Here, you're going to be out in. Uh, South Central Arizona chasing a mountain lion with the bow as well. That's right, yeah, um, with, with a houndman. But yeah, as much as I love bow hunting and, like, cut my teeth bow hunting, it's, our schedule, you know, the way we film, it's just I haven't been that comfortable doing the kind of hunts we do with the bow because I'm always worried about time. Um this is kind of like inside the show sort of information I'm giving you. But when we go out, like let's say we have a week to go on a shoot, and we know we're going to have a big food component. You know, we like to showcase and highlight food. It's just been, I've been a little reluctant to, with that time frame, go on backcountry public land bow hunts because I'm always worried about, like, it brings such an additional challenge to a hunt. Mm-hmm. But I'm always worried about, like, getting our content. You know, so in my main, like, non-TV life, I love the bow hunt, but it's just been difficult to integrate it into the show quite the way I'd like to. I think we will in the future more, but it's just been sort of a compromise I've made between the certainty of hunting with a rifle and knowing you're going to be able to showcase some wild game and live up to your name, meat eater, and then the thrill and challenge and skill that it requires to have a successful bow hunt. And my main bow hunt partner is my brother Matt, lives in Mile City, Montana. Now, he killed a bull every year with his bow. This year, he killed his bull uh, elk on his 22nd day of hunting. Mm-hmm. You know, and to schedule in, and you need a day for cooking. So for me to have to schedule in a 23 day bow hunt, you know, hunting national forest land is <laughs> to film. It's tough, man. You know, it's, uh, my goal is like to have more time and really bring that into it more. But I've just been reluctant to do it. You know, mm-hmm. even though it's my, even though it's my preferred way to hunt. And, and when I grew up, when I grew up in Michigan, you could bow hunt six, seven weeks out of the year. You could gun hunt ten days. Mm-hmm. So you could see that that. You know, it's always been a smarter thing. It's, it's just always made sense to hunt with a bow to me. But with TV, I've just been slow to get into it. You know, I'm kind of still, even though I've filmed, you know, for film show for Travel Channel, film show for Sportsman, 
I'm still kind of learning how to make things work on television the way I want. And I like to tell a full story of going into a rugged, good area. You know, I, I like to tell a strong narrative. And, um, and, and it's a goal of mine to, to make bow hunting more of a part of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's no doubt that uh, when it comes to efficiency, the bow, the bow is a distant second to the rifle. Uh, can't argue with that, and like you say, it's uh, it is a it is more of a challenge. It, it definitely, you know, is something that uh, carries to me anyway uh, more satisfaction when you're successful because you know, you know, the additional degree of difficulty that you've put on there. But, but I guess yeah, it, it can oh, make no, it. Diff- t- I totally, I understand that man, and and you know, I totally understand, and I know that feeling to kill. To, to take an animal to bow is, is is five times more exciting. You know, my dad, my old man started bow hunting. My old man fought World War II. He had me, he was 50 years old. You know, he fought World War II. He started bow hunting kind of when, like when people weren't bow hunting. I mean, he started bow hunting right after the war, like 1946, 1947. He was involved with Pope and Young. Um, I remember I remember being like five or six and went out to dinner in Akron, Ohio with Fred Bear. I mean, I've always was like raised in a you know, in a bow hunting culture. My dad didn't even rifle hunt; he only hunted with a bow, you know. And I I admire it fully, um, but it's just like I'm saying, like my the the lack of archery hunting on the show and be like you know 20 percent of the shows are archery shows. Isn't any kind of representation? It's not any kind of like statement against bow hunting. It's just strictly it's just strictly a matter. Oh yeah, it's just a matter of figuring out how to make the shows I want to make with a bow. The name of the show is Meat Eater, and so if you take meat out of the equation, the show is not really. uh, It's only half. It's only (laughs) half a show, right? (laughs) Yeah, so it's it's just a matter of like efficacy, you know, and uh, and you know, bow hunters realize that compromise and they embrace it, and that's why I have so much respect for it, man. I mean. You know, oh, hey, it's, it's not accidental. It's the most talented hunters I know. There's no That's doubt. The most talented hunters I know are bow hunters. I mean, just, it just has to be that way. Yeah, I mean, hey, but even bow hunters, this is where I was going to say, you know, I'll give you a little a little dirt, you know, on me, right? Uh, even the bow hunters, you know, occasionally have to pick up the gun. I was thinking... You know, I don't know if I'll do it or not, but the late archery, or yeah, late archery season opens up uh, the day after Christmas here. But there's a late rifle season in some areas too here in Pennsylvania, and I've been thinking, you know, I could really use one more doe in the freezer, you know, to get us through until next fall. And I'm like, might just have to take the rifle out and you know get it done because the weather can be a little nasty and. Bow hunting the late season is tough, you know. So oh, yeah. again, it that's something that cracks me up. That's something that cracks me up about uh, good bow hunters is like you'll be talking to you know most guys be like ecstatic to kill an elk with a rifle, you know. You'll be talking to a hardcore bow hunter, and I'll be like, "Hey man, did you wind up getting an elk this year?" And they'll be like, "Yeah, but I had you know I went out and shot it with my rifle." <laughs> oh, I can't tell you like, I mean, no, I sit down, you know, like I'll be sitting at home. I mean, I'm bad. I, I, I'll be sitting at home watching the Sportsman Channel, and somebody will, you know, kill a nice bull elk at several hundred yards, and I'm like, I have to confess, I'm like, oh, I've, I'm just such a bow hunting snob because I'll be like, so what, 
you know, that thing didn't even know you were there. <laughs> but <laughs> I got to try and temper that that part of me, though, because you don't want to become a total, you know, purist. Uh, it's a big world out there, and there's more than one way to, to go about it. And I certainly don't begrudge, you know, anyone for hunting the the way that they enjoy to do it the most. I'm, I'm all for it. So, but yeah, it's not, it's not the way that I would choose, but, uh, but like I said, there's nothing wrong with it. And, and sometimes even us bow hunters, if we need meat in the freezer bad enough, you'll take the rifle. And, uh, actually I was talking to some guys who have another show that's coming up on Sportsman Channel. Uh, Chris and Casey Kiefer have that dropped series, you know, coming out and yep, uh, yep. same thing with them. You know, they went up there and did that big float in Alaska and brought their bows. And I was just reading something. Uh, they said they only took like six bullets. That rifle was like an emergency deal, but they ended up having to use it just to get some meat because they didn't, they ran out of food, you know, early in that trip and they had to get some meat. So again, you know, when, when it all comes down to it, you got to eat, you know, a matter of what weapon you choose or whether it was a, uh, a perfect broadside shot sort of ceases in importance, you know, when you're worried about whether you're going to starve to death. Oh yeah, for sure, man. Yeah, yeah. And like uh, that's that's you know, and, and like I said when we first started talking, is um the primary important thing to me is is, is you know feeding myself the way I want to be fed. So whatever whatever facilitates that most effectively. Well, and so it I'm is... the kind of guy that when I'm bow hunting, it's probably a special. It's a bow season. You know, yeah. if I can bring a gun, I tend to bring the gun. Right. Well, and like you said, you know, you talk about feeding yourself the way you want to feed yourself. I mean. Let's face it, game meat is very, very healthy meat, and, you know, you talk about making the argument to society, I'm not saying that the answer for everybody in this world is to become a hunter and put their own meat on the table, but when you... No, we'd run out of critters pretty quick, man. Yeah, as I always say, thank God not everybody does it, but but in all seriousness, you know, you look at factory farming... You know, certainly, yeah, okay, maybe the answer for one person is to say, well, I'm going to become a vegetarian, you know, and not support that at all. But, you know, a perfectly uh, good alternative is to say, hey, I'm just going to go out and kill my own meat because, you know, what I'm doing is totally sustainable. It's totally organic. It's totally healthy for me and my family. And, uh, yeah, maybe it is a better alternative than, you know, the, the pollution that's being generated by factory farming or the way that the the animals are treated there as opposed to just living wild and free and you get a bullet in the heart one day and five seconds later you're on the ground and you never even knew what hit you so yeah i'd prefer i'd prefer that lifestyle personally yeah oh yeah you have to go about my business and one day die rather than being raised for the purpose but uh i don't and and those are all things on my mind when i you know as i eat a wild game diet those are all things on my mind but but honestly, as much as I'm aware of that and that affects my decision, honestly, it's just like I have more fun and have more adventures and know more and have like a more real existence because of it. If you came and told me somehow, this is something I'm, I'm always kind of reluctant to admit to people, but if you came to me somehow and said, you know what, actually we've done all the science and it turns out wild game is not more healthy. It's actually a little worse than other kinds. I wouldn't quit hunting. I wouldn't quit eating wild game because it's like it's beyond any single explanation. Yeah, you know, I like knowing how to take care of myself, man. I can feed myself. I like I just know how to do stuff, and I'm proud to know how to do this stuff. You know, I'll keep doing it 
no matter what. Yeah, well, fortunately, that's never going to happen, you know, because the truth of the matter is it is better for you. And I think the reason. Oh, yeah, no, I don't have to worry about that coming to be true. But I just wanted to be clear that if it did, it wouldn't change my mind. You know, and, and, and to those of us, honestly, Stephen, to those of us who are hunters, you know, the logic behind that, the reason behind that is self-evident, is that that is the way that, you know, nature was intended. This is the stuff that we were made to be eating. There is nothing better. There's no better form of protein that you're going to find. And uh, that's why you look at these aboriginal cultures that still exist in the world who, you know, eat all this kind of stuff. And those people, you know, aren't getting cancer and heart attacks and, and all that stuff. It's like it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure it out. No, no. And the thing is about it, beyond just the meat, is the lifestyle that goes with it. I mean, there's an accompanying lifestyle to hunting where if you're a good enough hunter where you have a lot of meat to eat throughout the year, you're probably not living a sedentary lifestyle. Mm-hmm. It's like hunting, you know, hunting for wild game, it does you two pieces of good. One is just the actual quality of the food. Then there's the quality of the experience of what it takes to secure that food, you know? I can walk a long, long ways without getting tired. And I thank that to my lifestyle of being a hunter. You know, mm-hmm. that's good for your heart. Same way as uh, lean meat's good for you. So it, it, like it, 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 it does you good on a, uh, does you good on a number of fronts. Well, absolutely. And like we said earlier, it's one of the few ways that we can still connect, you know, with who we are as human beings. That That's another big part of it. You know, you talked, you talked about taking those people, you know, how many people you've taken out on, your first hunt and you know i think that i i've kind of been you know in that situation myself a couple times and even with you know my my kids and my wife and and they want to know you know before you go out you know what is it going to be like and what am i going to feel or you talk about that adrenaline rush that you get you know when that moment comes and you might have an opportunity to take an animal and you you tell people who haven't experienced that look you don't have to worry about it you don't really need to think about it it's just going to happen you can't you can't make it happen and you can't stop it from happening either because I'm telling you it's hardwired into every single one of us who we are as humans because we we were predators and we still are predators and that instinct is going to kick in and when it happens you're going to know it and there's nothing you can do to stop it and I salute you for continuing to celebrate that for promoting that lifestyle and and I know that meat eater is going to be you know an entertaining thing, but also a real celebration of who we are as hunters. So I uh, wish you guys the best of success with the project. Hey, thanks for having me on your show, man. It's a, a great magazine, great show, and I'm, uh, I'm honored to be on. Well, I'm sure we'll have you back, and uh, with any luck, you're going to figure out the, the bow hunting conundrum, and we'll get some more archery episodes here on Season 2. See, I promise you, I promise you on Season 2, it's going to be a 22-day elk hunt. Hey, man, if you need to make it happen, <laughs> call me up. We'll get the Peterson's Bull Hunting crew in there, and we will make meat happen. We will make meat happen together. That's what I'll do. Yep, that's what I'm going to do, because then we'll have, we'll have piles of elk steaks, mountain, mountain high elk steaks. So that sounds great. And I will uh, I will check in with you guys, and thanks for having me on, man. Yeah, and I won't tell you that I hunted uh, New Mexico for elk this past September and yeah, please don't tell me that. That's gonna blow the that's gonna blow the mystique of talking to the editor. Yeah. Hey, it happens. That's why we that's why we we covered that ground. Anyway, Stephen, yeah, it was great. Thank you so much. I hope you have a very merry Christmas, a happy New Year. I'm gonna definitely tune in January one for the Meat Eater premiere, and uh, 
I'll look forward to having a chance to meet you face-to-face here probably at some of the trade shows coming up next month. Perfect. I'll look for you. Thanks, man. Thanks for listening to Peterson's Bowhunting Radio, presented by Easton's Hard-Hitting Access Arrows. For more information, pick up a copy of Peterson's Bowhunting Magazine on newsstands now.